So when Solomon built the temple, it became a place of prayer and reconciliation for all people. To the Jewish nation first, and from them to the world, as was promised God made to Abraham. That spot on Temple Mount became a place where heaven and earth came together. Heaven and earth overlapped there. And uh, that imagery reminded me of when I was in high school, at prom time, the insurance companies came, and, and in front of the schools, they put out this, these red cars. And, and uh, that imagery, the two worlds colliding, heaven and earth colliding, reminded me of that, that wreck that's out in front of the school because it got to where you couldn't see where one of them was an SUV and the other was like a little small doodle bug. And you couldn't tell where one ended and the other began. At that point, you could see the back end of the, um, Jeep, the SUV and the back end of the doodle bug, but when they hit together, that part where they collided, the part where they intersected, it was all meshed together. You couldn't tell which part was one and which part was the other. And that's what the temple and the Holy of Holies, I believe, was like. It was the place where the heaven and earth came together. You couldn't tell when you were there in the presence. You couldn't tell if you were on heaven or, or if uh, you were in earth. And that's when uh, Isaiah's vision. Isaiah saw the vision of the throne room of God in the temple and, and he said he could see God there high and lifted up and the, and the seraphims flying around him like, like uh, creatures of fire singing holy, holy, holy as the priests were in the courtyard singing holy. But um, and so I think that that's what it was like. It was that, that, that picture of them coming together, colliding, heaven and earth on Temple Mount. And that is the, um, the temple is important because the, uh, it's where the kingdom of God and the world intersected and it became a major backdrop or a setting for the big story. And when we talk about the big story of the whole Bible, we talk about even though the Bible is made up of 66 books, and it was written over 1,500 years by at least 35 different writers. It is one big story. And it's the story of God the Father and His faithfulness to His people. It's inspired by God the Holy Spirit who breathes life and inspiration into the world. And the big story is focused centrally on the Messiah, God's Son, who came to the world as Jesus Christ the Anointed to seek and save the lost. And the temple here, this story is about a thousand years before Jesus came in his earthly ministry and about 400 years after the children of Israel were laid out of Egypt by Moses. And this was uh, their high water mark. This, uh, the kingdom of uh, David and Solomon, that was the high watermark for Israel because it was the culmination of centuries of promises and covenants. And it was God, uh, God finally had David, a man after his own heart, on, on the throne 
and the lane. We talked about David last week when he was just a young boy and fought uh, Goliath. And he united the kingdoms. And this is when the kingdom was most like the one that God promised Abraham that he'd have for the boundaries, the whole promised land, and even uh, some of his neighbors. Some tribes warred against David, and some of them became his friends and respected him as a great warrior. <coughs> and he wanted to build God a house. He said that it wasn't right for him to uh, live in a, such a beautiful palace and God still have his ark set up in a tent. An old tent that had been carried around the desert for 400 years. And David, like I said, was a man after God's own heart, but he wasn't perfect. But he did, when he did sin, he did ask for forgiveness. He did repent. But God said he had so much blood on his hands. It was David's ministry to be a warrior. And he wanted his house to be made by a king of peace because it was going to point to the coming of the prince of peace, Jesus Christ. And so, after David, the King James uses this phrase, went the way of his father. It's a lie. That means after David passed away and was buried, Solomon, the son of Bathsheba, became king. And God offered Solomon many things. And he said that what, like, he could give him riches, he could give him power, and Solomon asked for wisdom. And he became like known as one of the wisest men. People from all over the world would come, it says in the opening chapters of 1 Kings, they would come to ask him advice, to see what wisdom he had, and write down his Proverbs and wise sayings, and it became his duty to build the house for God that David wanted. And it would be a landmark. It would be a landmark, that place where heaven and earth overlap. A place where many times the story in, that we followed, the big story in the Bible, is happening with the temple there in the background. And that was part of David's legacy. In chapter 4, verse 29, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, breath and mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of the people of the east and the wisdom of Egypt. In verse 34, And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and from all the kings of the earth who have heard of his wisdom. But God was faithful to Solomon. In chapter 5 we see that King Hiram of Tyre, he was one of David's friends. And he heard that Solomon was on the throne and that Solomon was wanting to build the temple that David had always talked about. And he said that he would offer whatever his people had. And they were known for the tall cedars of Lebanon, the trees, the cypress, their gold. And he said, right, anything we can do to help you serve David's God, we will help. And so they sent these trees and workers and craftsmen in. 
And chapter 6, which is where our verse in the bulletin says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt into the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, the month of Zeb, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. And in that inner sanctuary he had, he, he brought in the stones from his quarry. And the stones, everything was chiseled out in the quarry. He didn't want the sounds of the hammers and chisels to be there on the threshing floor that would become God's house. He wanted it to be a respected place. Uh, not a place where people were doing their work. So he wanted them to bring the stones already hewn there, ready to build. And after he built the house of stone, he had it inlaid with those tall timbers and cypress. And he covered all the wood with gold. And then in the Holy of Holies, he was taking the, the uh, tools from the tabernacle and bringing them in. And one of the things is the Ark of the Covenant. And that was the mercy seat of God. It was like God's footstool. God may have been in heaven, but he rested. His spot where he rested on earth had been in shallow for a while, and now he was moving into Jerusalem. And he put that in the Holy of Holies. Only the priest was allowed to go in there once a year to make the atonement. And guarding the entry to the Holy of Holies, Solomon had built uh, these two giant cherubim. A lot of times when we think of cherubs, we think of the little fat angels with tiny wings, but they weren't. They were mighty warrior angels, had multiple sets of wings, and, and sometimes the Bible says they even had fiery swords. And they were fierce. And he had two, uh, two set up. And Solomon, uh, if you uh, calculate out the cubits, they were about 15 foot high, and the wingspan was about seven feet on the, like the wings were seven foot long on both sides, and they were 15 feet high. And he had one on each side guarding the area of the Holy of Holies, just so anybody that came in would see how serious this place was. And on the outside, he called in a great um, artist and architect. And his name was Hiramasa. He was the widow's son. And he came and he had him engrave two large pillars and put them at the entrance. And uh, these became known as Joaquin and Boaz, the foundations, Joaquin and Boaz, the two pillars. And they were 27 feet tall. And at the top they had all these gold pomegranates and networks and this beautiful artistry. And that was going in. You see that. And then when he finally had finished, and all the people came out, God sent his glory into the house. And it said the cloud of smoke entered in. Uh, chapter 8, verse 10. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand the minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord build the house of the Lord. And that was a pretty long introduction, wasn't it? <laughs> Sorry about that. But I just wanted to get to this point where you see how serious 
Solomon took his undertaking and how all the different um, countries that had allied with David, they also sent workers, they sent artists, they sent supplies and gold to help build and honor David's God through Solomon's work. And we get to the part where I wanted to Here's a picture of the, what the artists think it looked like with the pillars. There's uh, Joaquin and Boaz, and inside where the gold is will be the two, uh, two giant angels guarding the Holy of Holies and the place where God's glory rested on the Ark of the Covenant. You remember it's a golden box that uh, had the Ten Commandments inside and Aaron's rod and I think of a little bowl of manna and they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat when they did the yearly atonement sacrifices. And when the priest went in to sprinkle that blood, a lot of times they would tie a rope to his ankle because if his heart wasn't right and God's glory would strike him down and they'd have to pull him back out with that rope tied around his ankle. And outside he had the great... Uh, Altars, because all the animals that they would sacrifice were peace offerings, and he uh, and this is what artists think that Solomon's temple looked like. And so, the temple became a place of prayer and reconciliation. And we're going to mainly focus today on David's, I mean, uh, Solomon's prayer of dedication in chapter eight, starting with verse twenty-two. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. So he says that, God is a unique God. He is the only God like Him. Now, people of other nations may have been worshiping gods, and some, uh, some of the Old Testament writers said that the gods they worshiped, they were powerless. Sometimes they believed they worshiped gods that were the, the fallen angels. And so they did have some power, but they were not like the one true God that David and Solomon worshiped. And so God is a unique God is one of the lessons we can get from that. Verse 24, you kept with your servant David, my father, that of what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled in this day now. Therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before him me on the throne of Israel, if only your son is paid. I like this, because it says, he'll never take away David's family from the throne of Israel. He'll never, ever take away his spirit from that temple. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you've walked before me. Now, I said David wasn't perfect, but when he did uh, sin, he came to God with a broken heart and asked for forgiveness. And so all these people will, like, that the lost the temple, 
because they turned away from God. They started following other gods. They lost the temple because they, they didn't have that heart of repentance. The, uh, the temple was a place of prayer and reconciliation. If they would have went and prayed and asked for forgiveness, the temple would still be standing today. Now therefore, God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. Verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? God is so great, even all of heaven can't contain him. If he is omnipresent, that means he's everywhere. And how is he going to fit in this one house, even though it is a glorious house? And he says that he understands that. He's not trying to limit God by making this temple. But he's trying to use it as a landmark, a touchstone. That way, if um, when people see this temple and how glorious it is, they'll know that this is just a tiny, tiny piece of what God can do. This is a tiny piece of something that glorifies God. And as great as it is, God's so much better. This is just the spot where he dips his toe in the earth. Mm -hmm. it, not, even though it is so great and big and beautiful, that's all it is. Yet he is regarded to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. Listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offered towards this place. A lot of times, even Jewish people today still refer to God the Father as Hashem, the name, Baruch Hashem, the blessed name, because they said that his name dwells there. He put his name there. That means that this place is his. It belongs to him. It's part of his kingdom now. It's part of the heavenly kingdom, even though it's here on earth. And listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. So no matter where they are on earth, if his people remembers his dwelling place, remembers the temple, and they, they can still offer up praise and still receive reconciliation no matter where they are, God will hear them wherever he is when they pray and want to be reconciled and repent wherever they are. As long as his temple standing. If man sins against his neighbor, verse 31, and is made to take an oath, and comes out and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then here in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head, and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So he sets God up to be judged over all. Every time you make a deal with someone, you need to remember that God is the arbiter of that deal. Like, if you're cheating someone, you're, you're not just cheating that person. You're trying to scam God because it is saying that here, he's the arbiter of all oaths. He's the arbiter. Uh, and he's the judge over any oath that were sworn, any deals that were made. When your people Israel are defeated before 
the enemy because they have sinned against you and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house then here in heaven and forgive the sin of your people. So even when they turn their back on you, even when you have to punish them by letting other people come in and defeat them, if they come back to this place and ask for forgiveness, if they come and pray, if they come and seek reconciliation, they come and seek forgiveness, pour, please pour it out. God, verse 36, then here in heaven forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon the land. I love that phrase, the good way in which they should walk, because Jeremiah used something similar. Because after this temple was destroyed because people lost their way, he told them to go out into the go out and find the good way. Go find the old path, the good way. The way things used to be done. That's what Jeremiah told the people. <clears throat> Verse 37, if there's a famine in the land and they come and ask for, uh, ask for help, they will be given help. Verse 38, whatever prayer, whatever plea made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands towards this house, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render each whose heart you know according to all his ways for you. You only know the heart of the children of mankind. Only, only, uh, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. Uh, a lot of people try to, if you watch commentaries, they'll try to say that Christianity and, and Old Testament uh, Judaism they say it was a collective religion. All this thing people have today that talk about having a personal relationship with God, they say that, oh, that's just a new idea. That's not the real faith. The real faith is a collective thing. It was a, it was a tribal God. And, you know, it was a collective thing. So people would go and ask for blessings for the whole country. You know, I like, you know, it was God saw them as one big group. But here... King Solomon says, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man, he's saying God's personal. God will punish the nation for the sins of the nation. But he says God's also personal. God will answer your individual prayers. He knows what's in your individual heart. And he's a personal God. He's not just, and this is a thousand years before Jesus came. A lot of people think that Jesus was, the, when Jesus came, it was this revolutionary idea that, oh, well, God's now personal. God's now wants to have a personal relationship. But a thousand years before, Solomon's saying, no, God already wants to have a personal relationship. Because God's always the same. Some people say, well, the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God. They're not. They're the same. And this verse shows that, how God has always wanted a personal relationship. Even back in the time of the garden, when Adam and Eve, he had a personal relationship. Walked with them in the cool of the day. And 
here in the time of the high point, the high watermark of the kingdoms of Israel, God still had a personal relationship with people that came in. Verse 46, skipping down to verse 46. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. And this sounds like a letter from Paul almost. Nobody is sinless. Everybody sins. Everybody is with fault. So everybody needs prayer and reconciliation. Everybody needs those things. And that's why he built this house to point towards the fact that God offers reconciliation or forgiveness. He uh, a good relationship. And it's a place where you can focus your prayers. Verse 47, Yet if they turn their heart in the land in which they've been carried captive and repent and plead with you in that land of their captors, saying, We have sinned. You have acted, we've acted perversely and legally. If they repent with all their heart with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and prayed to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers of the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name. So even if you're taken away captive, even if you're, it's like he's foreseeing what happened in the next generations, what he was seeing who his grandchildren and great-grandchildren would do and how the nation would split and they'd be taken away Captivity, like during the time of Daniel, they would they would be taken far away and thrown in prison and become servants and slaves. Even during that time, they remembered God and asked for forgiveness and turned their hearts back towards Him, the same God that Solomon built this house for. He would look favorably on them and restore them. He ends his prayer by saying. For you have separated them among all the peoples of the earth. Your peoples are not like everyone else. And your heritage, they're your heritage. And you declared through Moses your servant when you brought out the fathers, uh, brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. So he ends his prayer of dedication by saying, like you've, you, know, you made us, set us apart and made us different. And we, we love you. We want to have a relationship with you. And through us, the rest of the world will be blessed also. Because they became the sort of the in-between, the priesthood for the world. And we see this in the New Testament when it says the gospel first came to the Jews. But when they turned him away, then he came to us. And also, they had a... They had build a new temple by that time. And it was in that generation after the time where Jesus was crucified and, and it, during that time that the, um, they rejected him as the Messiah, they lost the temple again. The, it was sacked, it was torn apart. And that brings us to the... Oh, I'm sorry. Hit the wrong thing. <laughs> This is what happens today. Since they rejected Jesus as Messiah, they lost the temple. And in it today, since uh, around the year 688, stands an uh, Islamic mosque on the Temple Mount. 
It's the goal of the Dome of the Rock. It's been there for 1,400 years. But now there's also uh, counterfeit temples. Now this is one of the things I'll give you a warning about, counterfeit temples. This is the temple in Salt Lake City. There's people, why do people want to build counterfeit temples? It's like the idea of um, the uh, Venus flytrap or the pitcher plant. They, like, they, they know that the temple is a place of power, a place where God and heaven came together. God and heaven came down and touched earth. And so they'll say that they have that here. And when people come to it, they are caught in a trap, basically. And, and so the, the temple in Salt Lake City, the Warren Temple, I don't mean to offend anyone, but they, don't, they, they say they follow Jesus. But New Testament tells us that if uh, their Jesus says other words than they're in here, it's not the same Jesus. If they have a different gospel, then they have a different Jesus. And if they have a, uh, you know, a different Jesus that says different things, they don't have the gospel that saves. And so they have the temple. And some of the people I've known have been some of the kindest, most humble, most uh, good people you know. They believe the lie. They've fallen for one of these counterfeit temples that say that they can reach God, that they can reach God through their temple. But they're following a different Jesus. They have a different temple. They have a different gospel. And another group, like I said, I don't want to offend anyone, but I used to be a uh, member. I was a um, senior deacon in a Masonic Lodge. And there's lots of good men that love Jesus serving in Masonic Lodges. And they use their uh, work in the Lodge to do lots of charity work to help people. But then there's also some people that don't have the Gospel. And they look towards the good work they're doing in the Lodge as a way to build their temple in heaven. They're using their good work to try, like um, the Tower of Bible, build their way to heaven through their good works. And, and I've known people there that love Jesus. I'm not saying that's a conspiracy like some people say. There are people that are Christians there, but then there's other people. that they're, they're, um, It's a false temple because they get that the souls of the damned are being comforted. The souls of the damned are being comforted by saying, you're doing such good works here in this temple that you will have a place in that celestial temple. And But there are some faithful people there that, that will tell you, take people to the side and say that, you know, this isn't instead of church. This should be in addition to church. You know, this isn't a... There's no plan of salvation here. There's just a plan of how to help your neighbors here. And there's some people that do that, but not all lodges have people like that. And so that's why it becomes a that's why it becomes a counterfeit temple. And so what does this mean to New Testament Christians like us? And now you may have sent through this whole lesson and be like, that's that's really interesting, Chris. All this stuff is real interesting, very interesting history lesson. 
But what does this got to do with us? Because we don't worship in the temple. We're New Testament Christians. Paul, Paul knew you were going to ask me that. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are brought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We said the Old Testament temple was a place where God dwelt. It's a place where God came down to earth. And our heart is a place where Jesus has given us the comfort. He's given us God the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to comfort us and to guide us and direct us. And so we don't have to go to Jerusalem to a uh, restored temple. We carry that temple with us. And if we carry the temple with us, that means that we also have the same ministry function that the te uh, temple had. And what was the function? I've said it a hundred times. The function of the temple was a place of prayer and reconciliation. A place of prayer and reconciliation. Amen. Paul even says that we need to pray without ceasing. Just like how the priests were, were in the um, temple around the clock. You know, there's stories of when it was even the tabernacle. Samuel was a boy would wake up in the middle of the night to make sure the candles were still lit. <laughs> Things. So we need to constantly be in prayer. And our, our list, our prayer list we're going through today, that is a, uh, that's a mission from God to constantly be in prayer for ourselves, our families, our neighbors, our nation. And so we carry out that ministry of prayer that was carried out in the Old Temple. And Paul even tells us that we have the ministry of reconciliation. Since we have gotten forgiveness from God and we've been reconciled to Him, it's our job now to tell others. It's our job to help restore others. It's our job to point to Him and say, this is how we, you can be reconciled to God. You know, with a contrite heart, you need to you know, it's no magic formula of prayer. It's no, it's no works that you have to build up. It's you come with a broken heart and you believe on Him. You have faith in Him. You're baptized in His name. And He gives you that new heart. And then, then that new person is another temple that's going to be out doing the same thing, working in the ministry with us. Because we are, we are not just a division of like, priests that stand up here and parishioners out there that just come and listen. No, this is a place where we're all ministers. We come here and we become encouraged. And now you need to go and be a missionary in your neighborhood. You need to go and be a missionary in your family. You need to go and be a missionary and a priest to your friends, to your grandchildren. And that's what it means to be a temple to us as New Testament Christians. Amen. Amen. And so I encourage you to remember that lesson. To remember as we leave this place to go out into your job to be the temple. And, you know, I like this building and it's awesome, but you also need to be building more buildings through your work in the neighborhoods and your families. 
All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. We had today to look at one of the great stories in the Bible. It's helping to encourage us to go about your ministry in the world. And when we do sin, please forgive us. Give us that contrite heart where we ask for forgiveness instead of bearing it down with pride. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.